Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. A true story. They joined for freedom. They fought for honor. They found glory. That's a clip from the trailer of the 1989 film Glory, which tells the story of the first black regiment to fight for the Union during the Civil War. The 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry and their white commander, Robert Gould Shaw, are memorialized on the Boston Common with a monument considered one of the most important installations of public art in the country. The Shaw and the 54th Regiment Memorial is about to undergo a multi-million dollar restoration over the next year and a half. But this is more than just a restoration of the bronze monument. While the project is underway, the Museum of African American History and the Friends of the Public Garden are collaborating on programs and events to highlight Boston's black history. Later in the show, an intimate and explosive dialogue about race and racism in America in the new drama, The Niceties. The play is really about people who all agree that they want racism to go away, and yet they don't agree about how or how bad it is. Politics and politeness on stage in The Niceties, now showing at the Huntington Theater's Caldwell Pavilion. But first, joining me in the studio are three people involved with the 54th Regiment Memorial and the Restoration Project. Marita Rivero, who is the executive director of the Museum of African American History in Boston. So well, glad to be here. Thank I'm you. so glad to have you, Marita. Liz Visa, the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. Great to be here, Kelly. And Joe Zellner, who is a member and the former president of the board of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment Company, A Reenactors. Welcome, thank, Joe. Thank you. It's good. Good to be here. All right. So I want to start with you, Marita, because when I first saw the movie Glory, it's not been that long ago, I didn't have a clue about the 54th. And I'm thinking I'm not unusual. And I bet many people don't even know this monument is there and what it stands for. So talk a little bit about why it's so important. Well, here we are, right, in the, in the city that really pushed through that last wave of abolition secured our, our, what we call the modern democracy. And people say, uh, I didn't know the African Meeting House was there. I didn't know the, the Heritage Trail. And I didn't know the Shaw Memorial was there. When we don't know our history, when we don't have images in our heads of people who were active, who were acting in their own behalf even, who were working across race and gender and class uh, in really what has to be one of the major civic engagement stories and movements in this country, right? The first real struggle for human rights. When you don't have the picture in your head of who's doing that and why, you come into our current discussion and dialogue really missing important elements. Uh, so it is important for us to take the time uh, to use this moment of restoration to open up our heads uh, 
to think again about who's an American? How did we get here? Who has been involved in this great experiment in democracy? And how do we really want to move forward? So who were the 54th uh, men in the Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry? These were men who were uh, working anywhere, living anywhere from Indiana to Ohio to Canada uh, to New York. The call went out from Boston. Uh, the black community leaders in Boston said to the then governor, John Andrews, we're losing this war, and if black men can't fight, uh, it's just, we're, you know, we can't even imagine what could happen. We can't lose. We're ready to raise a regiment. Frederick Douglass is prepared to recruit. And we know people all through, all around the states at that time who are ready to fight. So the people who came forward uh, uh, included people who were free blacks who were working. They came from, as I, as I said, a broad geographic space. One quarter of them were from enslaved, were from slave states and the Caribbean, one quarter of them. Uh, so this was an effort that took in everyone from Frederick Douglass's two sons, Lewis and Charles, uh, to a farmer, to someone who was working for someone else. Um, this was a massive effort to shore up the Union uh, and to really push forward uh, to win this war. So you had to have somebody to lead this troop that uh, came together in the way that you've just said, and it fell to Robert Gould Shaw, who was, my God, 25 years old and kind of a reluctant leader. I want to play a clip from Glory. Uh, this is when Massachusetts Governor John Albion Andrew tells Robert Gould Shaw he has submitted his name to command the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. I could use your help, Robert. The governor is proposing to raise a regiment of Negro soldiers. No, no, no. It was not just my idea. Mr. Douglas and We will us. offer pride and dignity to those who have known only degradation. Colored soldiers, Rob. Just think of it. Wonderful. I've submitted your name, Robert, to be commissioned colonel of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. Thank you, governor. That's, that's a wonderful idea. So Marita Rivero of the uh, Boston Museum of African American History, who was Robert Gould Shaw? So Robert Gould Shaw was the son of a very wealthy family. They were abolitionists. Uh, he himself was a veteran. Uh, he'd fought in Antietam. He dropped out of Harvard in order to join the Union Army uh, and had fought at the Battle of Antietam. So when he was uh, called forward by the governor, it was because no one could accept the idea that they were going to be black officers. It was hard enough to accept the idea that they were going to be black men who were going to be reasonable soldiers. But officers, no. Uh, and so the governor really went to a family. He went to his father first, actually, and said, I'd like to talk to your son. Um, and the parents agreed, yes, of course. Um, so he had to find white officers, 37 in the end. There were 1,000 uh, troops in the regiment. 37 officers who would step forward, believe in this cause, believe in their time in this cause, uh, and be willing to lead these troops. And Shaw, I don't think, was reluctant. Uh, he said, as we heard, yes, I'll, I'll take this commission. And, and, and he did, and he did so honorably. So, Liz Visa, the, where the monument, where the monument of the 54th and Robert Gould Shaw is, I don't know if a lot of people understand, is that's the spot where they marched off 
when it all came together, when Robert Goulshaw had been named, when the men came from all the places that Marita had named. And there it is in the spot where they marched off. I mean, it's doubly historic, if you will. Absolutely. <laughs> they indeed marched down Beacon Street. They were waved by, by their neighbors and friends and family and went off to uh, the water and, and floated down to, to South Carolina. So it's really, an, it's significant that it's the place where they marched. It's also significant that it's across the street from the state house, from the place of power in the state. So it's really important that the, the monument and the state house speaks to one another. At that time, does it did it look like it kind of looks now where the common is and where the street is and where the state house is? Was there anything different at the time they were marching? Because of course the monument wasn't there yet. <laughs> no, it actually you know the common looks remarkably the same as it did since the sixth seventeenth century. Um, the space looks the same. One thing that was there before the monument, which we should point out, is those trees in front of the monument. People often scratch their heads and say, "What is it with those huge, strange-looking trees?" Those two English elms were planted in the 18th century, and it's possible that they were planted by John Hancock, who lived across the street before the huh. state house was there. His estate was across the street, and he got uh, permission from the Board of Selectmen in 1780 to plant elms in the common. And these could be the elms that he planted. They go back, as I say, to the 1700s, and they're the oldest English elms in the Western Hemisphere. So when Augustus St. Gaudens designed the monument, he designed it to be framed by those two elms. And the Friends works very hard to protect the elms and preserve them as we move forward because they are significant as well. Hmm. Um, that's my guest, Les Visa. She is the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. Now, something else. The, one of the reasons that the piece is, and, and there are so many layers to why it's important, was the artist. Um, talk about the artist um, and why that helped to elevate this monument to a place you know, almost instantly um, because of who he was. So Augustus St. Gaudens was ultimately chosen. There were other people that were considered before him, and there were other forms that were considered before he set to work to do what he did. The original thought was to be an equestrian statue. The Shaw family didn't want Shaw to be shown separate from his men and also didn't think he was important enough. He wasn't a general, and these equestrian statues are usually generals. Augustus St. Gaudens was beginning to be very well known. He did the Farragut Memorial in New York City at the um, Madison Park. And uh, in fact, he was commissioned in 1884 to take two years to do the work, and he got busy with other work. Other people were demanding his time, so it took him 14 years to do this, this monument. He was well known, the, Charles McKim of the famous uh, sculpture architectural firm, McKim, Mead, and White, did the architectural surround. So they both were very noted, both sculptors and architects that did the work. And one of the things that um, that's striking about the piece um, then and now and continues to be is that the faces of the men are quite distinct um, and that uh, at the time, you know, black people were just sort of thought of as one big lump. Well, you know, and so it, it could have easily been where there was almost no distinction between the men who represented the folks who fought. But this became a a distinctive feature of this piece. And he got his models. Absolutely. Radically, actually. Yes. He brought African-American men into his studio, and he modeled dozens of heads. So he's not showing a caricature of a, of a black man. He's showing individuals from the young drummer boy in the front to the grizzled old man behind him to the two soldiers behind Shaw. It was shocking in a wonderful way when it was unveiled. I mean, people realized its greatness immediately. And as you say, Callie, people could relate to the fact that these are individual human beings that are marching off in a very personal battle for themselves.
Now, what we've learned about um, St. Gardens is that he um, was had plenty of racial prejudices. He didn't really think much of the men who came in to model for him. Um, and yet he decided to make this distinction. Uh, this is from the PBS series, 10 Monuments That Changed America. Professor Kirk Savage of the University of Pittsburgh speaks to how the monument was revolutionary, not only in how it depicted the black soldiers, um, despite uh, St. Gardens' racial prejudices. The artist in him was really interested in the actual faces of the men. If you look at the monument carefully, you'll see that each face is different. It was unprecedented, a realistic tableau of a diverse group of black men in an era when most representations of African-Americans were caricatures. So that just, I mean, who knew that? You just assumed that this was, he was part of some kind of abolitionist strain, and he very much was not. And yet he ended up creating a piece that lives on today and that really celebrates um, who those men were inadvertently. <laughs> I mean, if, if, even if that wasn't his original intention. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I think, and you can, you can agree with me or not, that that's the striking part of it, that people come up and it feels so defined. Um, it is remarkable. Mm -hmm. this, th these individual men speak to you in an incredible way. I mean, when it was unveiled, it was clear immediately that this was a great piece of art. It did not have to grow on Boston and, and the world. It was clear, evident, just in terms of the artistry, in terms of the individuality of these men, in terms of the relationship between the bronze and the architectural surround. It was just a shockingly successful monument from the moment it was unveiled. Well, now over to you, Joe Zellner, because the 54th lives on through people like yourself. Yes. Um, you uh, reenact the men who were made up those faces, the real people, the real histories of those men that came from Indiana and every place else around the country to be a part of this. Talk to me about how you first knew about the 54th, or maybe you always knew about them. Not that I always knew about them, but I had for a long while. I was most impressed when in 1997 the anniversary of the um, unveiling of the monument was held on the Boston Common and when many of the federal and state dignitaries were there. There were reenactors there who reenacted that march that Liz talked about. They reenacted that parade down Beacon Street, which was the precursor to their getting on board ships and steaming down to Charleston. But as I think about myself, I knew about, about the regiment historically, but it was that visualization of those reenactors that impressed it upon me that, hey, I'd like to do that. And it was from that 1997, it took me a while to get into it, a few years later, but uh, it was that parade, that commemoration, that centennial celebration, which impressed upon me, yes, this needs to be remembered. And if I can help that by joining the men who reenact the regiment, then I want to do that also. So that was my introduction. So you had a little probably a little motivation because you're a history teacher at one point. So that <laughs> that probably brought you uh, closer to the subject matter. <laughs> yes. Um, and it gave me, I think there's a greater reality when one participates in history as opposed to simply preach or teach about history. I, there is a lot to be said for having been there and done that, which adds to one's credibility, not only to the audience that you're trying to instruct, but also to your own security, your own 
um, appreciation for what it is you're instructing. So yes, history teaching is my profession, and um, being part of the 54th, and that, and the 54th being part of the African American history, is also very important to me. So people may not know that um, when you guys get together to reenact um, a scene, you're not just um, you know doing a sort of amorphous marching down uh, black men in uniform. You actually know the the men that you're representing. Tell us about who you represent in the 54th. Yes, and I encouraged our men to 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 represent themselves. You know why I reenact, but also to take it upon themselves to learn the history of a specific individual in the regiment. I reenacted, and still do, reenact Solomon Pierce. And why Solomon Pierce? Um, the luck of the draw. I was, When I started reenacting, I figured that I could reenact a 40-year-old much better than I could reenact an 18-year-old. Uh, there had to be just because you're an older gentleman, just well, so yes. we should say that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there had to be some credibility mm-hmm. in my feeling about the character. And so I began looking through the regimental history, trying to find the oldest man in Company A that I could. And the first one that I came upon was a 42-year-old, Solomon Pierce. And I was just, I'll use the expression, blown away that a 42-year-old, and this isn't a professional soldier in that he joined when he was 20 and had been a 22-year veteran. He, as a 42-year-old, joined for the first time. I was more impressed when I found out that he joined after his oldest son had joined. And then a third aspect of that was that when Solomon joined, he took his second son, his 19-year-old son, to join with him, and the three of them will serve in the regiment. One will die, his oldest son, Uh, Harrison Pierce will die at the assault on Fort Wagner, and he and his second son will live and survive the war and are buried in Munson, Massachusetts. So as I began to find out more and more about this person, I was just more and more impressed that here was a a 42-year-old father of four who joins the war and the sequence and the series in which he joined— because his first son dies in July of 1863. He doesn't join until December of 1863. He takes himself and his second son. They leave their wife and mother, Solomon's wife and his second son's mother, at home with a nine-year-old and a child that will be born nine months later in August of 1864, And I can only guess, I wish I had some document or some paper that would give me some idea of what the discussion was that went on in that family between July of 1863 and and December of 1863 when husband and wife are trying to decide, are you going to take my second son and yourself? Who's going to run the farm? So Solomon was quite an impressive character to me. Well, that brings me um, to this part, uh, Joe Zellner, um, reenactor of uh, 54th. How do you feel when you when you portray these men? Because, you know, you have to put forth that these were men that were giving up a lot 
putting a lot on the line for something they felt was so important, not just for themselves, but actually for the people they were leaving behind. It was very moving. Um, military expression, I know it goes back to 1863. It probably goes back earlier. But seeing the elephant, that is, that experience, that, that emotion that overcomes one, particularly when one first goes into battle. And as I first went into my reenacting battle, I was not necessarily, I was not overcome, but I was become with emotion as to what the men must have felt, especially when you are marching in a straight line, wearing blue, knowing that the other side is going to be shooting at you. And it is quite possible, quite probable, that one of those shells, bullets, canister, grape, whatever, is going to hit you. So, yes, um, I'm not a veteran myself, but I play the role of one. And I, too, felt that emotion that just made me realize that this is more than play acting. This is more than cowboys and Indians. This is giving credence and credibility to the life of another, one that I don't even know but wish that I knew more about. And, and, and credence to the, his cause, because the cause yes. was freedom. I mean, they were in the middle of the Civil War looking to be free. And <laughs> But keep in mind, Solomon was free. Yes. But Solomon I mean and cause. his family. Yes. The, yes, yes. The yes. cause was freedom. Mm-hmm. That he's not fighting for his freedom. He's fighting for freedom exactly. of people he doesn't even know. He's fighting for the notion of all men are created equal and endowed with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So freedom to him was achieved he's fighting for he's fighting to uh, to achieve the freedom of many others well you all have gotten some um as as well deserved some um national attention many times um performed at both of the inaugural parades for president barack obama that it had to be a thrill yes yes uh, mm-hmm. the the regiment was asked uh and petitioned the first time and second time to participate and it brought out, it did great things for our membership enrollment. I bet. <laughs> but um, regrettably, that sort of waned after the second event. But nonetheless, um, it gave us a lot of national attention, recognition, and we appreciated the opportunity. It was a great thing to be participating as soldiers, reenacting um, that which was denied to them. Uh, in 1865. It was denied to them to march in Washington, D.C. in 1865. But we got the opportunity in 2009 and again in 2013. Joe, there's there are some issues um, beyond the 54th reenactors about just finding folks to continue being these characters in living history. Um, you know, we can't let that happen. This is an important group. Tell me what's, what's going on there. Um, Lots of reenactors, not just black reenactors, but lots of reenactors and Confederate reenactors also. Um, Over the past 10 years, I heard many comments about uh, when the 150th comes around, I think we're going to hang it up. Mm. And um, 1865 to uh, 2015 was the 150th. And as a lot of reenactors, Myself included, I haven't hung it up, 
But uh, we've all gotten older, and we've not been successful as we need to be, as successful as we need to be in recruiting 35-year-olds, 42-year-olds, uh, as, as was my case. But uh, Maybe this will help, this restoration and the attention about it, on it, you think? Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will certainly be that stone monument that will live live on in the place, even if the human flesh and blood people don't step up. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I think about the living history, the the people portraying the roles, I'm I'm wary. Um, I don't have a good idea as to how to stimulate or excite or reinvigorate. And been there, done that. It's been a generation now since Glory was produced. You're right. It's been 30 years. Um, it'll be 30 years next year. Our regiment is planning a 30 a 30 year commemoration for next year. But uh, there's a, a lot of 18 year olds. What Glory? What? What? You know they they haven't seen the mm-hmm. film and they don't know the story. So, which is a good reason to have all these discussions during this restoration period. And um, yes, mm-hmm. one one of the you know I think if people might ask, two point eight million dollars, it looks pretty good to me, but that might stimulate that aspect of the history, which would allow us to bring in human bodies to stimulate the living history aspect of the history. So, I trust so. So the reason we're having this conversation to remind everybody who's listening uh, is not just to remind folks that we have a great monument and you should know about it and there's history and it's beautiful, but there is about to be paid a great amount of attention to it, a huge restoration project, uh, which was just kicked off recently. I want to play a little bit of the Massachusetts 54th reenactors presenting the nation's colors at the restoration launch, which was in July. That's the 54th reenactors in action. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me, Marita Rivero, Liz Visa, and Joe Zellner. And we're discussing the Robert Gould Shaw and Massachusetts 54th Regiment Memorial Restoration. So, Liz, let's start with you. There's a lot of money being put in uh, restoring this monument. Uh, Describe exactly what's going to happen and why it's needed at this point. Yeah, great. Mm -hmm. People do look at this and say, what's going on? It looks pretty good to me. (laughs) And uh, the Friends of the Public Garden, just a bit of background, we work with the city. We have since 1970 to care for the Boston Common as well as the Public Garden and Commonwealth Avenue Mall. And our first major campaign was in 1981 when we raised $200,000, which was then a large sum of money, to restore this monument, which at that point was a victim of corrosion, neglect, and vandalism. It was in terrible condition. So we restored it. We set up an endowment for care. We've been caring for it ever since. Three years ago, when our stone conservator was doing work on the stone, he pulled one of the stones below the bronze back away and looked at the foundation under the bronze and realized that that brick foundation was not as strong and sturdy as it should be. So given that, if it were we were to have a seismic event, it would not hold up under that. So we realized at that point that there was a fundamental need to do a reconstruction. So we're taking everything, and I want to also mention that we're doing it in partnership with 
clearly the city of Boston, which we are partners with, as well as the um, National Park Service, who is bringing half of the money to the table, which is really wonderful. We're taking everything off-site from the plaza level up, all the stone and the bronze, mm-hmm. bringing it to a conservation studio. We are um, re-waterproofing the plaza. We are um, conserving the, the uh, bronze and the, and the stone, but we are most importantly rebuilding that, that brick foundation into concrete, putting it all back together, pinning the bronze to the marble. We really don't know how exactly that is pinned to it. We want to wow. make sure it's really strong and sturdy. Um, we're also putting something underneath. This is an example of how technology can help preservation. It's called cathodic protection, and it's an electrical system. It's used a lot in... Um, oil rigs offshore. They're sitting in water and corrosion is is happily working its way into their steel. So it introduces a piece of metal that is known as sacrificial metal. So the electrical current helped to bring corrosion to that sacrificial metal and protect the steel beams that are holding up the plaza, that are holding up the monument. So all of that adds up to $2.8 million. That will be off-site. It could be up to six months. We say four to five, but it could be longer than that. In the meantime, we're going to be having a full-size scrim so people can look at that monument in the absence of it being there. And also in the meantime, you're going to be kicking off uh, some programs to have some discussions both about the monument itself, Marita, and also uh, issues beyond that. Let's just take a listen to Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Uh, He was uh, kicking off the launch of the restoration and talking about looking forward while the restoration is going underway. Boston is proud. But we can't rest in that pride. Instead, we must use that pride to set a standard for today and have conversations we need to reach that standard. That's what this memorial project will help us do. So what about those conversations, Marita Rivera? It's important for us to to remember that history is context. Uh, And when we're talking, we're looking at the front pages of our paper, listening to radio, television, talking to our neighbors. Those conversations are happening uh, in some kind of surround, emotional, sometimes intellectual. Uh, And we need to bring forward right now this sort of question of social justice, racial equity in a contextual framework. The memorial allows us to do that. The 54th was recruited right there on Joy Street uh, in Boston. Uh, We're looking at a society that at the time thought black men were just incapable. There were stereotypes, cartoon figures. Uh, the, the 54th changed that. One of its real values was that it changed how black people were seen in this country. Uh, their bravery was unquestioned, no less a personage than Abraham Lincoln uh, really said that without this, uh, A, their bravery attracted thousands more to the war, um, but really without, without their kind of action, we would not have been able to move forward in the way that we did. So these opportunities to go back and ask ourselves, how are we seeing one another? Have we moved past cartoon figures of one another, past stereotypes? Are we able to actually have real kind of dialogues? Um, This is one way to begin to open that up, Uh, to begin to think about what surrounds us as public art, public uh, buildings. Uh, We have an old African meeting house on Beacon Hill, 1806. What does that mean? Uh, people call it a hidden secret. They just walk past it, or they might walk past the Shaw. This is a moment to help people stop and really reconsider how these monuments came into being, why we preserve them, what do they mean, how do they uh, resonate with our own images of who we are, uh, who we intend to be. 
Uh, so the project partners uh, really felt that having a vision uh, for a dialogue that could be encouraged, partnered with, uh, that could extend even past the restoration of the monument was a critical goal. Um, we want people to know about this wonderful monument around the country. It's a chance to really bring it and its meaning forward nationally. It's a chance locally uh, to say, what's the next step in the dialogue we need to be having? And how can this history and this discussion of stereotype, of public art, uh, of public memorial, and even public memory be part of what we do right now? Uh, so I think the dialogue on social justice, on uh, racial equity, uh, is one that has animated a sizable percentage of the population. It's certainly been, been something the mayor of the city has been interested in. And for us to be part in this partnership now with the National Park Service, the city, and the friends means that we have a, a, just a chance to focus again on, on historic context, but to allow it to inform a dialogue we might not have had yet. So I'm, I'm excited about what could, what could come from this long term. And it's about 18 months is the restoration, so you have quite a bit of time um, to put forth any of these discussions, various programs, events around the, during the restoration process. We have time to do that, and we're hoping um, we're hoping that you know, in addition to what we will see as uh, some large kind of public events that we manage, that the, our partnerships can continue to create programming that will address these issues as we go through the 18 months. The Museum of African American History has a, a race in the public dialogue series. Um, we are going to continue with that. Notable Frederick Douglass uh, scholar David Blight is coming October 16th. He'll be at the African Meeting House under the Park Services auspices to really look at that kind of historic piece. You know, we just finished a piece on the future, looking at everything from uh, Phyllis Wheatley and her interest in, in uh, I want to say, science fiction. Can you believe that? Mm. William E.B. Du Bois wrote science fiction straight through to the Black Panther movie. So, you know, how do we begin to think about extending these ideas uh, forward? Connections. Connections. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What do we mean that people seem to wonder who's an American? And a lot of discussion now about mm -hmm. who's a real American. Uh, and we here in Boston know that in this maritime society, Everybody was here, right? The mm -hmm. China trade brought people from Asia, Caribbean people, people from South America, Middle East, Mediterranean, North Africa. We were all here in Boston. Women, men, uh, all levels of society were here. And beginning to expand that story, to expand what we say, allows us to see ourselves in America, I think, in a much more enlightened way. Absolutely. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I thank you all for joining me today. Thank and you. I look forward Great to hearing to about the activities as they happen over the next uh, months. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, very you. Much. Good Thank to you Kelly. Marita Rivero is the executive director of the Museum of African American History in Boston. Liz Visa is the executive director at Friends of the Public Garden. And Joe Zellner is a member and the former president of the board of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment Company A Reenactors. Coming up, it was 1997 in the wake of the Rodney King beating and O.J. Simpson's acquittal when President Bill Clinton first presided over a national conversation about race. Since then, there have been many attempts to bridge the racial divide in conversations that go beyond surface and stereotype.
Now an explosive new drama at the Huntington Theater's Calderwood Pavilion lays bare the dysfunction of our debates around race in America. Up next, The Niceties. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. In October 2015, Yale sent an email to its students urging them to avoid racially offensive Halloween costumes. Shortly afterwards, the campus was thrown into an uproar over freedom of expression, cultural sensitivity, and safe learning environments. You, you expect us to stand here and listen to your experience of becoming a master and you can't even listen to anyone telling you that you have caused them pain? You expect us to listen to... I'm listening to you. Are you kidding? Lisa left because she was bawling because you couldn't say sorry. Maya is standing here in front of you. Do you even know? Watching the events unfold online at her alma mater, playwright Eleanor Burgess was struck by how dysfunctional the debate around race and racism in America is. Burgess was inspired to pin her newest play, The Niceties, which portrays an initially friendly conversation between a black student and a white professor devolving into an explosive debate about race, history, and power. Eleanor Burgess is here to talk about the niceties, now featured at the Huntington Theatre Company's Calderwood Pavilion. She's a native of Brookline, Massachusetts, and an award-winning playwright. She's also a Huntington Playwriting Fellow from 2011 to 2013. Welcome, Eleanor. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm glad to have you. Also joining me is Kimberly Sr., who is directing this production of The Niceties. Kimberly's directing credits include the Broadway premiere of Ayad Akhtar's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Disgraced, as well as the HBO adaptation of the off-Broadway one-man show, Chris Gethard, Career Suicide. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm glad to have both of you. Well, I saw the play... And it was with a lot of other people, and I'm I, I, I'm hoping I responded in the right places, as did the rest of the crowd. But let's start again uh, with just some basic information. We give away nothing here on this show. No plot twists, no what happens at the end, just so set the table that way. So, Eleanor, uh, basically, um, give us a sense of what inspired you. Um, I talked a little bit about the Yale incident, but from there... How did your mind go to sort of start framing this story? So what happened was that I, as you mentioned, noticed that conversation after conversation would become painful, hostile, unproductive. I was stuck in multiple months of these failed conversations where uh, people would either get very defensive and be unable to hear the person they were talking to, they would get protective of an institution that meant a lot to them, or they would be talking about something that was so painful that it was very difficult to be eloquent on that subject because it was too raw. And uh, But all of that sort of started to make me wonder much more broadly about... Um, what did I believe about this country? What had I been taught? What did I believe about uh, the education I'd received? And how should we talk to each other? I, I couldn't stop thinking about this subject. And I was just arguing with myself constantly. And, and as maybe frequently happens with playwrights, those arguments sort of coalesced into characters. And there were these two characters in my mind uh, representing my very different ways of thinking. And 
once they were speaking, I just sort of started to write it down and almost started as a journal of my own doubts and uncertainties and questions about education and this country and race. It's set in 2016. So um, now I, I've read that you're not going to advance it as years pass. So it won't be 2018 one year, won't be 2020 one year. It'll stay in 2016. But my question is, why did you want to set it in that year specifically? So I think, uh, you know, we can now see in retrospect a bit of a hinge moment in 2016. We're at the end of Barack Obama's presidency in the play. Uh, for a lot of, I think, older liberal Americans, we were at a point of like a high watermark of progress. And people, you know, if they believed that Hillary Clinton was about to be elected, we just had the first uh, black male president. We we're about to have the first white female president, uh, you know progress was happening. Things were coming together. Racism was going away. And uh, now we probably look back on that moment very differently um, for people who were surprised by how the election turned out. Um, I think that that uh, moment in time is so specific that to the whole play is built around, do you think we're headed in a really positive direction? And how much of a problem do you think race really is in this country? And uh, I think to some degree the election has shifted that conversation onto a very different group of people. But the play is really about people who all agree that they want racism to go away and yet they don't agree about how or how bad it is. And I think setting the play after the election would change that conversation mm -hmm. in terms of how mm -hmm. do you want race to go away. So as a reminder, Kimberly, there are two characters. One is a, a history uh, professor, white woman history professor, who's a bit older. She's mature. And the other is a younger uh, black student. And when you're a director of a play that only has two characters, every move twitch has to have some meaning. So I wonder how did you begin uh, first to just deal with envisioning a play with just the two uh, and then one in which the central focus was uh, such an explosive topic? Well, so much of it comes from the, you know, the things that you've been discussing with Eleanor and that we are attempting to keep their conflict in the room, right? There are a lot of big global ideas that are happening in this play and things that we're wanting to talk about in larger forums in an abstract way. And what Eleanor's done so beautifully, I love what you said about how the argument coalesces into character and that, that that's really then what becomes my job is about how through these humans, what do they want from each other? What is the cost of their relationship? Um, we discussed a lot about that, uh, kind of your hero or your mentor. Like Zoe says at one point that she really wanted to like Janine's class. And you have to believe that Janine's a great teacher. And so kind of keeping them in the room, having them work with each other rather than talking abstractly about ideas that are perhaps somewhere else, um, I think is really where we began. And it, it's also a lot about how are we... How are we building the tension? How are we dealing with the pace? What are we indicating or showing the audience? Um, you know, sometimes when your feelings are hurt, you show everybody. And sometimes when your feelings are hurt, you're very good at kind of keeping that in. And so we're still even navigating those one-on-one, um, -on -one, person person-to-person moments. That's my guest, Kimberly Sr. She's director of the play The Niceties, which is at the Huntington Theater's Calderwood Pavilion. So I won't have the right language for this, but this seems to me to be a, a, a talk play, if you will. So there's very little movement. It's really the dialogue that is the action. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're directing that, and you're keeping it in the room, and we understand, you know, what you're trying to communicate between these two. 
it it's so it's such in a small space. I I found myself watching to see where they'll go, what it means when when one got up and moved to a different chair or one corner because it wasn't a lot of movement and I assume that's your direction. <laughs> yes, I mean and actually they they move more than you think they do. I feel like um you know, that I do have them sort of sometimes, right, moving is motivated by human behavior, right? Like I have to go put this book back in my bag, like that kind of stuff. But also a lot of it is about, you know, fascinating, I've committed my life to studying the way bodies move in space. And like, what does it mean when someone stands when they're speaking? How do we take up space in a room? How do we try to not take up space in a room? What is the, what is the power dynamic? Um, you know, we can study uh, the... I mean, this is an obvious example, right? But of like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and their mm. debate with him stalking behind her. And what did that mean? And what did that feel like? And so that to me is like principles of staging, right? Like mm. we can look at that example where you're seeing these bodies and what story do just their bodies in relationship to one another tell? And so we've had to navigate those things. It just, you know, last night we're still in rehearsal because we're in previews and you saw some new moves last night oh, that I had. Okay. Yeah, All so right. there, there was a couple new moves in there where we got like a little bit more space. It's also about where if you're thinking about uh, going to see like paintings at the museum and you and I are looking at a painting and I could say to you, like, where's your eye going now? And there's a way that the painter has crafted that painting that your eye is drawn to something which isn't always in the center mm. of the frame, right? And so a lot of that too is about what is the work that I'm doing in particular with my lighting designer that how are we drawing focus? What's the most important thing? Is there a a subtle game of moving your focus towards one of the characters and then you feel bad that you left the other one for a second. How do you keep them both mm -hmm. in your lens? So it's that, it's, it's obviously something I'm very excited about. But yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I was fascinated by watching it. I want to give people a chance to hear a little bit of it. Um, uh, this is Zoe explaining why she and a bunch of other students are protesting a talk by Sandra Day O'Connor at the school to Janine, who is the professor, who has overlooked Justice O'Connor's problematic track record with race. You're protesting the first female Supreme Court justice? Yeah, it's a ton of work. We're writing up leaflets on the real effects of her work, and we're going to be live-tweeting rebuttals to her speech and staging a walkout. It's a lot to organize. <laughs> Are you opposed to there being female Supreme Court justices? In 41 decisions involving racial minorities, O'Connor voted against the minority all but two times. That can't be right. You're forgetting I know how to use Google. <laughs> so the in there was a reference earlier when the, the teacher had said maybe going to the library would help you instead of going to Google. Um, and that is a piece, uh, an excerpt from The Niceties, which was written by Eleanor Burgess, who joins me here in the studio, along with Kimberly Sr., who is the director. So um, one of the things that I was struck by, Eleanor, is that there is a palpable generational difference. And I wondered if feedback from, you know, other audiences is that that almost can override your core issue, which is the racial conversation they're having or the conversation about race in all of its forms. Because, you know, certainly at intermission, we were having a big, vigorous discussion about this young woman and her the way she responded to the teacher. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, audiences tend to split in terms of how they're feeling about the characters along generational lines most strongly. That's most frequently where they split. Um, but I think that uh, that's very much a part of the central theme of the play. Um, what generation hasn't had sort of young people doing something that an older generation doesn't like how they're doing it? 
and there's this eternal conversation between older people of, well, when you've lived in the world longer, you'll understand and you'll think differently. And sort of young people saying, I haven't let the world make me conform yet. So I see things you don't see. And that tension, I think, is one of the things that makes the story uh, very human and and very uh, what Kimberly was saying about making sure that the stakes are in the room and you, we can engage with these characters as characters and not just as mouthpieces to talk about race in America. I think that uh, that generational split is one of the most real things about them and that irritation with. Uh, um, so I, I hope that that's part of what audience members are responding to. Oh, oh, we're we're responding to yeah. it. <laughs> uh, if you're just tuning in, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to the Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are playwright Eleanor Burgess, you just heard her, and director Kimberly Senior, and we're discussing the Boston production of Burgess's new play, The Niceties, which is now showing at the Huntington Theater Company. I want to play another clip um, because this conversation gets uh, somewhat intense. And um, this is at the point in this conversation, it's become heated between Janine and Zoe. And the disconnect between the two becomes more visible when Zoe tries to explain her frustration with Janine's apparent lack of empathy, she says, towards her students of color. You have never even tried to imagine our perspectives. And that is traumatic. The constant dismissal of slavery is traumatic. The fact that you don't care is traumatic. Oh my God, get over it. It didn't happen to you. Be angry about what's going on now. Be angry about Ferguson. But don't be angry about slavery. Don't tell me what to be angry about. Now, I, I picked that piece for a couple of reasons. First, it, it, it exhibits the tension. But also, you're a former history teacher, Eleanor. So I wondered about your picking uh, your main character, one of your main characters, to be a history teacher in this setting. There was a meaning there, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, a huge part of what went into me writing the piece was to ask myself, what have I taught? What have I believed about this country? And I, I love history. Every new detail I learn about the past, I'm fascinated by what that detail tells us about our present and about how people work. Um, and had a lot of questions about, was that okay to love parts of the past and to engage with them emotionally? And was I engaging with the right parts of the past? And I used to be an APUS history teacher. And there's something about APUS history, you have 180 days to teach people who are one year away from voting, mm. here's what America is, mm. and here's what matters. And things get dropped. They inevitably get dropped. You have 180 days to tell the story of America. And and that question of what am I teaching and how am I, how am I going to talk about who George Washington was? How am I going to talk about to what degree did Abraham Lincoln succeed? How am I going to talk about, uh, you know, Malcolm X and the Black Panther movement? How am I going to talk about those uh, parts of history? And did I talk about them the right way? You know, did I attempting to inspire someone gloss over how painful something was? So that question of the responsibility of teaching and the response, I think history is one of those places where the responsibility of teaching citizens and the responsibility of teaching a diverse group of people. And then we all take it into our lives. How should we talk about our country? How should we talk about our heroes? Uh, what should we focus on? How should we talk about the city of Boston? Um, is is really weighty and difficult. And for me, it was such a personal issue because I had to look back and say, did I do that right? Mm. Which is what's happening to Janine in parts of the play is being asked, did you do this right? Are you sure you did this right? And Kimberly, um, what I was struck by, uh, everybody's a woman in this situation. Mm -hmm. So 
You have Eleanor writing the play. You have you directing it. The two main characters are women. And I wondered if that intimacy, that staying in the room, uh, can be more palpable because this is how women communicate with each other anyway, in this rather intense dialogue way, you know, about pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm also going to add that our entire design team is women. Our stage management team is women. Our fight choreographer is a woman. Wow. Our producer. Our producer is a woman. Wow. So I just want to throw that out there. Okay. Uh, because it doesn't happen very often in our field. So it's it bears noting and hopefully will not be... Uh, the last time. Yeah, and won't be so exciting <laughs> yeah, next time I yeah, see you. Yeah, Do you know? Yeah. Right now it feels pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that it has... You know, Eleanor and I, when we began working on the play, I love that... You know, the, the men that are present in the play are um, George Washington and Barack Obama and... Um, and they're off stage. And they're, they're not on stage. <laughs> right. So... Um, They've gotten enough attention, frankly. Um, but, yeah. but it is—it's nice to uh, to see this. Um, to in in what you're saying about the way that women talk and the way that ideas, how we move from from idea to emotion. To I like your jacket, and what do you think about that op-ed in the New York Times? That we can like go back and forth so quickly, and um, I think that the the love relationship that exists between these two women which is there. There has to always be a love relationship on stage. Not a romantic love, but just a like, you know, Janine can see in her students someone with tremendous promise and potential who she really wants to see thrive and succeed. And Zoe can see someone to look up to who she can hopefully emulate. And so that in those relationships, I feel that there is something that is, you know, uniquely feminine, but it's been wonderful to be able to just work with a group of women where we're not talking about romantic relationships mm -hmm. and we're not talking about physical appearance and we're not, you know, um, it, it happens to be that both of the actresses in the show happen to be incredibly beautiful women inside and out. Mm -hmm. But Eleanor and I are always like, but they're so smart and they're so talented, you know, that we don't want to like lean into this like stereotype of commenting on a woman's appearance because that has no place in our play and it's not in our world. And to see women as vital um, intellects who have something to offer our world and who are also shaping our future. Like I have a daughter um, who's 10 and she was able to come into the rehearsal room and I feel really proud to show her, look at these women exchanging ideas like about about the world that we live in, about our place in history, about who we are in the present, about how a possible organization of our future. Like that, we're capable of that. So I think it's, um, I'm very excited for young women to see the play for that reason. Mm. Um, Eleanor, there's always a place for art in the in the midst of fraught discussions, and the most fraught we're having right right now, the most the, the most divisive right now is is about race and all of the spectrum of how that plays itself out. Where do you see your play and the the niceties fitting into this? Uh, well, I think that this is an area where art can really sometimes move a conversation forward because we're this conversation that these two women have, we've all been in a version of that conversation at some point in the last two years. We have all either said something wrong or had to talk to someone about the fact that they said something wrong or we've believed something wrong or had to talk to someone about the fact that they believe something that we feel is wrong. Um, we've probably been in many of these conversations. We've probably been on both sides. Uh, and when we're actually in a conversation we can't possibly process it because we're defensive, we're terrified, we're angry, we're barely listening to the other person because we're thinking of the next thing we have to say. And so when we try to have these conversations for ourselves in the world, that's when they go so badly. And the opportunity to watch the whole conversation unfold and you don't have to participate. You don't have to defend yourself. You're not under attack. You're not uh, 
the person who has to sort of carry the mantle for what you believe lets you watch the whole conversation unfold and hear both sides of this conversation. Um, and I think that that then enables people to hopefully go into the world and have better conversations where these ideas are familiar and the idea of you have to listen, people might think very differently from you, is familiar. Uh, and I, I think that that's really something that uh, it can be a, a moment of rest and reconsideration for an audience. I think that also, you know, in the, any individual piece of art should be part of a much larger ecosystem. And obviously there's a lot of great art tackling race in America right now and from a bunch of different perspectives. And that's wonderful. It should be from a bunch of different perspectives. You know, we can't sort of tackle it from one angle and be like, ah, good, I've, I figured out race in America. Um, what I think uh, this play is very much about is both of these women want to be good people. Both of them are well-intentioned. This isn't a play about bigotry. It's not a play about overt violence. It's a play about people who want to be good people in the world and think they're doing that. And are they? And where are they falling short? And I think for me, that's a lot of the people that I know. Mm. Um, I know mostly really, really well-intentioned people. And I hope that this play is a chance for them to engage with what can they do? Um, what can they learn? Uh, because it's very easy to tell the story of race in a way where you demonize a, a specific group and say, ah, I'm not them, I'm not that demon group, so I'm doing great. And that's not true. There's, some, there's work for all of us to do, and I hope that that's the role this play can play. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Elmer Burgess is the writer of the new play, The Niceties, and Kimberly Sr. is the director of The Niceties. The Niceties can be seen now through October 6th at the Huntington Theater Company at the Calderwood Pavilion. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at WGBH.org. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.